you would, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll, we will begin tonight with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads and talk to the Lord. Father, thank you for this privilege of having Bible school tonight. I pray that you please guide us, Lord. There are some things that must be learned, must be said tonight. God, this chapter is, uh, every chapter is wonderful, but Lord, the things you said in this sermon are so powerful. Please don't let me get in the way or hinder anything that you want done tonight. I pray that you would move amongst us, even though there's a, a bit of a gap between us, God. Move amongst us. There's more room for you to fill. Please, God, fill each one of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the outline for tonight. Matthew 6, I'm going to break into two sections. I think you could easily break this into uh, four or five, possibly. And it's very tempting to, to um, preach this chapter instead of teach it. Now, if you've been following along on Sunday mornings, I am preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And I am just now, I finished chapter 5, so this coming Sunday, if, if the Lord doesn't lead me otherwise, I'll be preaching the first portion of chapter 6. So tonight I'm going to try to stick to more teaching, but man, there's some good stuff here. Two parts, verses 1 to 18, I would say, to be seen, speaking about the motives of why somebody does something. To be seen. And then verses 19 to 25, down to the, or uh, 19 to 34, I'm sorry, 19 to 34, to the end of the chapter, I uh, would call part two, true riches, true riches. Jesus will focus in on, on money and how God provides. So we'll see all that tonight. Uh, chapter six and verse one, Jesus said, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Now, it's important that you recognize that phrase, to be seen of them. It is okay to do your alms, that is to give. It, it's a very general term. Give money, food, clothing, whatever the need is. You can give something to someone else while another person is watching. You can do it even in front of the church. It, it is not forbidden. What is forbidden, according to Christ, is the motive of doing it so that you can receive glory from men. So if you're doing it to be seen of them, then even, you know, you can give something in private so that later on you can brag about it, right? And the motive would be wrong. So that's, that's what Jesus is telling us to be careful about. Watch out for the motive. In Mark chapter 12, you have a story at the end of that chapter where Jesus is watching people cast their money into the treasury there at the temple. And several rich people came and cast in much for they were rich. And then you might remember the story, a widow came and she cast in two mites, but that, that was all she had. She cast in all her living. And Jesus pointed out to his disciples that she had cast more in than all the others. Now, she did it in public view, right? So if you were to only read the verse, do not your alms before men, then Jesus would have found fault with that woman. But obviously that woman, Jesus knowing the attitude of her heart, she was doing it for the right reasons, and therefore he commended her. Uh, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now the reward, you're going to see this repeated several times in the chapter. And it looks as if we're looking at the eternal reward, something in, in the future. We're talking 
the kingdom age and even beyond that. For you and I in the body of Christ, we would think of the judgment seat of Christ, uh, where we have that gold, silver, and precious stone that we can be rewarded for. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3. And those rewards, as it seems, at the judgment seat of Christ, you can receive the reward reward there, sorry, in front of the entire body of Christ. They would see it. Uh, However, in the kingdom age, it's going to be very apparent what reward you have because of the inheritance. If you inherit 10 cities, if you have authority over five, then you can't really hide that reward. So you get rewarded openly for what maybe no one saw you do for the Lord in this in this life uh, now. Uh, let me just say a couple things, a couple practical things, because I think you understand the concept here. But I also know the crowd to whom I'm speaking, and I don't know of nobody comes to mind in our church that is doing things just to be seen of men. Now God knows your heart. I don't, but I. I don't see that as a major problem with most of our folks. But I do know of a bit of a pitfall that, a bit of a temptation, a snare that might uh, come upon you. Those that start off with all the right intentions, serving the Lord, and they don't care who sees it. They're just going to do right because it's right to do, and they're happy enough that God sees it. But you go on long enough, no one says thank you, no one recognizes it, And either the flesh or the devil, one of the two or both, will whisper in your ear and say, shouldn't somebody at least recognize what you're doing? Shouldn't somebody else help out? Shouldn't somebody else pitch in? Why is it always you that has to do this? Why can't it be somebody else? And what what was once done with a perfect attitude in your heart, you start to get a little bitter and you start to have that small desire in your heart, I wish somebody would at least see and acknowledge what I'm doing. And if anything, I think that's what you want to take heed. Be careful. Pay attention to that. Don't let that, that bitterness creep in there. If no one sees it, it might go on for years. Just keep doing it for the Lord. Verse number two, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, Do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. How is it that they already have their reward? Well, what they were seeking after was glory from men. They wanted to be seen. Well, by making a big deal of their kind gesture, their benevolence, People saw it, done. Transaction done. They got what they wanted. They have their reward. Now, when Jesus says, do not sound a trumpet, uh, that would, I think this is what we would call hyperbole, right? A figure of speech called hyperbole where you intentionally exaggerate something just to get the point home. I don't think, I don't read of any stories in, in the uh, history of the Pharisees or you know, in biblical times where these men would walk down the streets with trumpets and announce that they were giving. But we also have a phrase that we use. Uh, Maybe in Afrikaans you have something similar. In English we say, don't toot your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. Don't, Don't boast. Don't brag. That kind of thing. And I think that's the, it's a figure of speech that Jesus is using. Do not sound a trumpet. Don't draw all this attention to yourself when you want to give. Now, Whatever, in whatever manner 
these hypocrites in the synagogues, we would think of this as in the church, or out in public in the streets, I don't know what they were saying or doing. I don't know if they spoke loudly or if they made, uh, you know, gathered a crowd around. Whatever the case was, their, their heart was wrong. They were tooting their own horn. In verse 3, he says, But when thou doest thine alms, here comes another figure of speech, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Well, if you're going to look at this scientifically, right, your left hand and your right hand, I mean, your brain knows what's going on in both sides. It, it's a figure of speech. Jesus is using an adage or an old saying that was popular at that time. And it goes right along with this thought. The people that are on your left-hand side, they don't need to be aware of what's going on on your right-hand side. So that's the idea that Jesus is getting across. Um, when you do it, don't call attention over here and say, hey, everybody over here, look at what I'm doing on this side. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. Uh, verse 4. Now, for people that are uncoordinated, right, maybe not, not good with using their hands, verse 3 might speak something different to you, but I think that's how Jesus intended it. In verse 4, that thine alms may be in secret, so don't draw attention, so that they can be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. As I mentioned earlier, I believe there is a reward waiting for you in the kingdom and in eternity at the judgment seat of Christ. However, I believe that the Father can openly reward somebody even now. I believe it's possible even now. Let me show you a verse as to why I would say that. Come to John chapter 14 and look with me at verse number 21. John 14 and 21. John chapter 14 21, Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. What a promise. I will manifest, I'll show myself to him. Well, Judas, verse 22, has a good question. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, there was a, this is a different Judas now. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? So how, how are you going to make this show? That, maybe that's the wrong word. How are you going to show yourself to us and not everybody else recognize it? Because Jesus said, I'll manifest myself to him, just that individual man. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Isn't that a great reward? Isn't that a wonderful promise? That if you do something for the Lord with the right heart attitude, God recognizes that and there is a special level of God's love that He manifests to you and His presence becomes even more real to you. That is an outstanding reward. Now you might be thinking, but how does that apply to Matthew 6? Because it says the Father will reward thee openly. Wouldn't that be more of an inward thing where he's manifesting himself just to you in your heart? Take your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians 8. Let me show you a verse that goes with this, I believe. 1 Corinthians 8. Just taking a look at the streaming. Oh, good. Wonderful. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse number 3. 
1 Corinthians 8 and 3. It says here, if any man love God. Now that's what we were looking at in John 14, right? If a man love me, he'll keep my words. If any man love God, the same is known of him. Now folks, haven't you found this to be true? Aren't there some people that you know, when you spend time around them, when you get near them, they just have God on them? I, I've been around people like that. And it's, it's a fascinating experience to spend time around that person. I hang on every word. I want, to hear, I want to rub shoulders with those folks because maybe what they have, a little bit of rub off on me. I, I always, what comes to mind is Moses, right, in Exodus where it says he spent all that time on the mountain with God and when he came down, his face was glowing. And he had to cover his face when he spoke to the Israelites. It was just too much for them. He had God all over him. The same was, they knew he loved God. They knew he loved God. I hope somebody knows that about you. Come back to Matthew 6. Matthew 6 and verse 5. So the principle of the passage is quite easy. Make sure your motives are right for what you do. Verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray. Now I always like to point that out. Hypocrites, as we saw in verses 1 to 4, a hypocrite will give. Doesn't mean he's doing it for the right reasons but he'll give, do you? In verse 5, a hypocrite loves to pray. Now, of course, he has a different motive. He loves to pray for the wrong reason. But do you love to pray? He says, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What makes... I'll give you a good cross-reference for this. makes me think of Luke 18. Luke 18, I'll just read it for you quickly. In Luke 18, verse, uh, I'm going to start at verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You notice how he fasts? He's praying. He gives. But he's doing it with himself, it says. He prayed thus with himself. That's what these hypocrites are doing. So it might be very eloquent. I have heard this a number of times, you know, especially if you're in a, in a church that's gone a bit dead and you ask, die diakon. And he stands, man, he, he waxes eloquent, these big words, and he never uses those words in, in I want to say, his real life. <laughs> Just prayer language, you know, prayer words that he uses. There's no need to put on a show. It's okay to pray out loud. It's okay to pray in public. It is. You can go to the street and pray. I've prayed on, a, on many a street corner asking for God to help. I don't need to say it real loud so that everybody hears it. But at the end of the day, it's the motive of your heart, right? Solomon stood before all of Israel when he dedicated the temple. And the Bible says he, he went down to his knees and lifted up his hands and he prayed. And everybody heard him. Public prayer isn't wrong as long as your heart is right when you do it. Now, verse, at the end of verse 5, it says, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, same principle. 
But thou, verse 6, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Now, for most of us, closet is the space that we cram all of our junk into, including our clothes, our shoes, our you know, winter clothes, summer clothes, whatever it is, and anything that we don't want the rest of the public to see, we cram it into there. And the closet has no space, which is a good sermon in and of itself, right? Our lives are so cluttered, we don't have time to pray. So I'll let you preach that some other day. But when the Bible mentions, or when Jesus talks about a closet, it is a closed-off area. And even in the Old Testament, you can read it like that as well. A, a closet is anywhere where you can go and have privacy. Now, sometimes in my house, you know, we have three or four people moving about. Sometimes I walk out into the yard and stand under the tree. And man, when it's beautiful weather outside, sun's coming up or going down, something like that. What a wonderful time to pray. What a great time to pray. If you can be alone, you are achieving the principle. Now, that being said, if you're outside in the midst of nature, it's very tempting to take in and breathe in all that nature has to offer because God did a wonderful job as an artist putting nature together. Uh, so I do recommend the idea of going off into a closed area where there's nothing to distract you. And by the way, this is why we close our eyes when we pray. We want to shut the world out. Our eyes can act as the, door, the doorway to the world, the window to the world. So we shut those so that we don't get distracted. And he says, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, a psalm that many of you might be familiar with, especially in these days of, of pestilence. Psalm 91 talks about how the Father uh, dwells in the secret place of the Most High, and so forth. And that does tie directly into this. Thy Father um, which is in secret. Now, we know this secret place. We, we have a different term for it, the throne of grace, right? The throne room. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly uh, unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we shut the door of our prayer closet, it as if, it's as if we leave one dimension, leave one realm and enter another. And you enter into that throne room of God. You say, but if I peek, if I open my eyes, it looks like I'm still in a prayer closet. We walk by faith, not by sight. God said that at any time I can approach boldly. Not because I deserve it. It's by grace. It's because Jesus has granted me, Romans 5, access by, grace in, uh, access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. What a wonderful promise. I, I surely hope that you take the Lord up on this privilege of the prayer closet. And again, it says, Thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The same principle applies. I've already mentioned. Rewarded. You can be rewarded in the future, in the kingdom, uh, in eternity. And then there's also, especially with prayer, there is the present tense reward of, of God's presence. Verse 7, But when you pray... Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, the heathen, he just lays it on any Gentile group, and pretty much every Gentile group has a different pattern by which they, they would refer to prayer. 
we would, I think of it more like chanting. People have mantras that they just repeat over and over. Even well-meaning Christians get stuck in this, right? As a Catholic growing up, I wasn't saved, but I prayed. I prayed the prayer that we're about to study here in this chapter. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That is it in heaven. Gives us day our daily bread. Forgives our trespass. We give those trespasses. Leave not temptation. I'm mean, praying so fast. Because in the Catholic Church, you have to pray a rosary. Which, interestingly enough, in Chichewa, the rosary, you call it corona. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, you have to pray it. Each bead represents a prayer, so you have to go fast. I repeated those prayers. And I did it vainly. It was empty. There was nothing to it. I just repeated it because I thought the more I said these things, the more I would get God's attention. Now, lest you think I'm just picking on Catholics, um, we Baptists do it too. You know, we get stuck just saying the same things every time we talk to God. God, you know, thank you for my uh, house. Thank you for my car. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the food. Uh, please help me with the day. Da, da, da. And, you know, we just kind of go through the list and then we're done. No heart to it. Charismatics, they can get into this. And listen, there, there are some that have very good intentions and mean very well. So please don't, don't run, run down a, a mean path with this. But they get stuck repeating gibberish noises. It harkens back to what heathen have done for centuries. Right? In India, the shamans would go into a trance and make similar noises. A biblical example of this is in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah went up against the 450 prophets of Baal. And it says that for several hours they leaped upon the altar and they said, O Baal, hear us. Now that's all they said. They repeated that for about, I think it's six hours. They just repeated, O Baal, hear us. 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 And they thought they would be heard for their much speaking. You know the story as well as I do. The fire never fell. Elijah got up. He dumped the water on just to drive the point home. He prayed. God answered. The fire fell. And he turned, he turned them into a nonprofit organization. Amen. He, he wiped them out. Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. All right, let me give you a practical note. Just a quick thought. I don't think this verse is teaching us that we don't need to take time in the prayer closet. But I think there is something powerful you can learn from this. When you're in the prayer closet, you don't have to do the majority of the speaking. That's something that I've, I've learned with time. There are some days where I have more to say just because there's a lot of my heart and I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. But I have found it very profitable to enter into the prayer closet Greet the Father, present my petitions, and then just stay quiet. Be still and know that He's God. Let Him speak to me. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14 talks about communing with the Holy Ghost. There should be some give and take. You give a few words, but then you should have ears to hear what the Spirit says. Verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. So you don't have to chant your request over and over. Oh God, help me. Oh God, this. Oh God, this, 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 this. One thing. God knows that you need it. So you go in, you make the request. 
Now here's what you do. It's okay, it's okay to repeat the prayer as long as it's not done in vain, right? Verse 7, what is forbidden is vain repetitions. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, He went and prayed the same thing three times. Paul said that he asked the Lord to remove the thorn from his flesh three times. It's okay to pray and repeat the prayer request, but don't just chant it at God without listening for the answer. The Father knows that you need it. Now, you know that as you go into the prayer closet. So as you go in, you say, Father, I know that you know that I need this. Can you please tell me what I should do in order to make this situation right? Is there something I need to do? Is, is this situation the way it is because I'm doing something wrong? And then have a conversation and let him answer. Let him do some speaking. The Father knows what you need, but there's a good chance that you don't know what you need. So as you go into the prayer closet, you might, you might walk in thinking, okay, God, this is what I need to fix the problem. And you walk out of the, pro you go, uh, out of the closet thinking, that wasn't the problem at all. I'm the problem. Or this other thing needs to be taken care of. So a lot of people think prayer is useless because if God already knows what we need, why do we need to remind Him? It's not as if He's forgotten or if He's gone senile and, and forgotten about it. God wants more. He wants to be more than just an ATM in your life. He's your Father. I have three kids. I know they have needs. It's still special when they come to me and say, Dad, can you help me with this? I'm so, I'm honored. I'm honored that they let me be a part of their life. How much more of an honor, eh? When you turn to God and say, God, I need your help. I don't want to do this without you. I don't want to do it my way. Verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Now, some people... You probably know this as the Lord's Prayer. That's what it's commonly called. Um, a, a lot of people have already memorized it, and it does get repeated in churches. As I mentioned earlier, if you repeat the prayer, if you really mean what you're saying, technically there's nothing wrong with that. I would caution people about repeating this every week in church or every day because it, you, it can get a bit vain or uh, mindless or heartless. But I don't think Jesus is telling them in verse 9, when you pray, repeat these words. That's not what He said. After this manner. You want to know what kind of things to pray about? You want to know how to, how to approach God? Here's the, here's the way you would approach Him. Here are the kind of things that you would say, that you would talk about, that you would need help with. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven. Bear in mind, He's talking to Jewish disciples. Right? This is not a prayer that Jesus taught the body of Christ to pray. Now, that being said, this is a wonderful prayer. There's great things we learn from it. But I, I want to make sure you understand doctrinally, Jesus is teaching His Jewish disciples that were living before the cross how to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, when we pray, right, I say my Father. If we're praying as a group, you can say Our Father. That would make sense. But this Our Father, this is the Father of the Jewish nation. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So let your name be sanctified or holy. Let it be 
lifted up and exalted. Verse 10, thy kingdom come. That's the focus of Jesus' sermon. That's the focus of his ministry. That's why he came, was to offer the kingdom to his people. So what are, we, what, what are the disciples here praying? Thy kingdom come. Now you and I can pray something similar in the sense that we know the rapture needs to happen. There needs to be this seven years of Daniel's uh, 70th week. Then the kingdom comes. So I, we can still pray something along these lines, but we would have more focus on Jesus, please come and gather us home. Uh, thy kingdom come. Come from where? Well, God's authority, right, needs to come down to the earth. So just like it's up in heaven, at verse 10 it says, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, which shows us that the kingdom which Jesus is referring to is an earthly kingdom that he wants to establish. So this is something we cover in discipleship, so you should be very familiar with it. But the kingdom of heaven is actually an earthly kingdom. One of the reasons it's referred to as kingdom of heaven is because the same way God's authority is established in heaven, one day it will be established on earth. And the people in that kingdom, that earthly kingdom, will do the will of God, just like in heaven it happens now. Verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Well, I've thought about that quite a few times over the last few days. There are, and I, I can say this now, well over 100. I, I think the number is approaching, I think it's over 200 now. This gentleman I spoke of earlier in our church, he's delivered food to so many people that didn't have any. I, I really, I'm going to have to claim ignorance. I can't remember a day where I've had to pray for my daily bread. My daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. God, provide my necessities today. Do you see how you can learn from the principle of the prayer and then broaden it out? Provide for my physical needs. You could think of it like that. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts. That's an interesting way to refer to sin. In another gospel, it's it, forgive us our trespasses. But here he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now we're going to talk more about that in just a couple of verses. But when you pray, there should be a time of confession. God, I'm sorry for, and then tell them what you've done wrong. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. Forgive me, I can see better like this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, turn this around. Lead us not into temptation. If you prayed this in, in a positive, without the word not in there, we'd be saying, lead us in, in a safe way. God, keep us out of trouble. That's a fair prayer to, to pray. Deliver us from evil. Now, when you think of temptation, you have to include more than just the temptation to sin. God is never going to tempt any man with that sort of moral evil. James chapter 1, God doesn't tempt man like that. But as we saw at the beginning of Matthew 4, the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. So there is a, a certain form of temptation, as in a trial or troubles or some perilous time. So it is completely fine to say, God, please keep us safe. Show us the best path so we can avoid all the snares and traps and problems. That, that's a fair prayer to pray. Jesus prayed it like this. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So if there are some tough times laying ahead or lying ahead, 
then God will give us grace and help to get through that. But it is perfectly fine to say, God, I want to be prudent. I want to be smart, wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Show me the best path to take to accomplish your will. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God, we know you're able to answer these prayers. You have the authority to do it. And when you do it, everybody's going to give you the glory. It's not because, and please listen to this. This is a truth God has just made real to me recently. My prayers get answered not because I am a good prayer. I don't know if that's good English. It's not because I'm good at prayer. It's because God is good at, at answering prayer. Some people think, man, I'm no good at praying, and then they give up doing it. <laughs> You'll never get to the point where you think, yeah, I know what I'm doing when I pray. <laughs> I would worry about the man who thinks that. I have great boldness that prayer works, but not because I'm good at it, but because God, He's in control. He has authority. He has power. He has glory. He has greatness that could cover anything I could pray about. Verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Notice here, you've got to remember, Jesus is saying this before the cross, right? Before the cross, there is no atonement for sin uh, that, that satisfies God and cleans the man's soul, right? You don't have the finished work of Christ. So in the Old Testament... Before Christ dies, you need to forgive so that you can be forgiven. But then after the cross, this process gets turned around. Because we're forgiven, now we forgive others. See, In the Old Testament, it, it was the other way. I forgive you, I, I show mercy so that God has mercy on me. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. But in the New Testament... Let me give you Colossians on this. I'm so sorry for that shaking. Man, I'm trying not to do it. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse uh, 13. Colossians 3.13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So I've been forgiven. That's why I forgive others. Uh, let me give it to you in Ephesians. Same thought. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 run very close to each other. Uh, in verse 32, Ephesians 4, 32. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So up to the cross, you forgive to be forgiven. After the cross, because we're forgiven, we forgive. All right, now there's also a very practical lesson that you need to learn from Matthew 6. These verses 14 and 15. Here, here's the principle. Your relationship with others will affect your relationship with God. Now we already learned this in chapter 5, right? About taking the gift to the altar. If you have a problem with your brother, go fix it. So we've already talked about that, but that is a practical lesson you can learn from those verses. Verse 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces. They would rub dirt, mud, and stuff like that to make it look like they were down in the dumps. That they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, 
they have their reward. Same principle as we've already dealt with. Verse 17, But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. So, get fixed up just like you would any other day. He's not saying to put on a show, but this is the typical Jewish behavior. You wash, you know, you wake up, take a shower, wash your face, anoint your head. This is a verse that proves you can use hair products. Amen. <laughs> you can put a little, uh, a little wax or mousse or whatever. Anoint your head. But he's just saying, make it look like any other day. Verse 18, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, the, the chapter for fasting, if you want to learn about fasting, and by the way, it works the same way in the Old or New Testament, as far as the act of fasting. That didn't change with the death of Christ. But Isaiah 58 if you want to know more about fasting, study Isaiah 58. And it has some great advice. I'm going to read you one part of it because it says, The Father shall reward thee openly. Let me show you how this can apply presently. Isaiah 58, uh, I'm going to give you verse 8. Now, you have to fast properly. There's several little nuances there about it in the chapter. Verse 8 then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rear reward. So it'll come after you as well. It'll be behind you. So you can see how the, glory, the presence of God is manifested through this. Uh, so we're not going to spend a long time talking about fasting, but I will say that it is a new... I'm so sorry. That it is a New Testament practice. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, Paul talks about how fasting would play into a marriage relationship, which is slightly outside of our scope now, but it is something that is done in the New Testament. And if you've got questions about it, please feel free to ask. Uh, it is something that we should practice, if physically possible. Verse 19, now we enter into a separate section now, a second section. Jesus has dealt with things that people do to be seen of men. And now we're going to look at the true riches, true riches, and how to deal with a lot, of, a lot about how to deal with money. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Now this is not a verse that says it's wrong to have a savings account. Right? This is a verse warning you about a balance of storing up everything on earth that's just going to go to waste. It is smart to have some savings uh, and to have some things laid up in case of tough times. And you'll find this in the book of Proverbs. It talks about there's oil and treasure to be desired in the dwelling of the wise. Uh, where's the verse now? Let's see if I can remember it here. It's left me now. But there's some other passages. Nope, that's it. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I'm just going to read it for you quickly. It's a lesson we learn from nature. Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. So the ant 
gathers food while there's time because there's going to be a season when there won't be any food and the ant stores it up. And Solomon says, learn a lesson from that. So there's nothing wrong with a bit of, uh, having a savings account and storing up some money. The problem is if, if you're storing it up and it's just going to sit there and go to waste and there's no use for it, the moths are going to get it. The thieves are going to take it. So if that's where your emphasis is, if that's the focus of your life, if that's the priority, something's wrong. Verse 20, but lay up for yourself, Matthew 6, uh, verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Wherever you invest, that is where you're going to focus. You are going to put more effort into something when you are heavily invested in it. Now, if, if your life circles around money, let me make sure I have enough wealth so that I'm comfortable and I can maintain a certain lifestyle, you, you can tell that a lot of people, that's all their life is about. They don't put much focus, much effort into the things of God. Now, you let a man take his paycheck and hand it, out, hand it over to a missionary. You let a man take his paycheck and rather than buying his own food, buy food for others, something of that nature. Whew, that's an investment. That man, his, you know where his heart is, right? If you want to know where the man's heart is, follow the money. Look at where he stores up the money. Again, I realize there's a balance to this. <laughs> Dr. Ruckman used to tell us, always put me under conviction when I heard it. I always had to pray a little harder when I heard this. He says, you know, every now and then I just take my paycheck and give it, give it away. You know, he'd pray about it and give it to somebody that needed it. He said, just, you know, keep, keep, keeps me where I need to be with the Lord. I thought, man, I, whew, what, what a great act of faith. And I'd always walk out of the room going, God, did, did, did you have him say that for me? Do, do I need to get my priorities Better balanced? Let's keep working. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that anymore. It brings conviction to think about. Verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. Now people, they use this verse to talk about the eye as the window to the soul and so forth. Uh, there's, that's kind of a different story. There is some truth to that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. The light of the body is the eye. So he's saying whatever you focus on, right? The light of the body. What, what your eye sees, now we know the physical process of seeing has to do with light reflecting and all of that. I'm not a biologist, so I'm not going to explain it. I can't. But I know that it has to do with the light. And when you're focused on something, right, the light of the body is the eye. So if my body is busy doing something, then my eyes have to be focused on it. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, focused on one thing, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now what should your eye be focused on? It should be focused on the Father. Singular. That's it. God, what do you want me to do with my time, money, resources, whatever? Verse 23, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is is that darkness. Now we need to identify what is the evil eye. Well, we can 
do a little bit of narrowing down. In verse 22, the I is single. And then in verse 23, you would think then the I being double would be evil. And I think there's truth to that. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. If you try to say, I'm going to focus on God, and at the same time focus on money. Guys, we're going two separate ways there. I want to say you go cross-eyed, but you're going to go, you know, this, whatever that is. Your eyes just... If that's your case, and you have two focuses, the whole body actually gets filled with darkness. Now, why is this? A guy says, I'm going to focus on God, but then he also focuses on money. What's going to, he's going to end up doing, he will use God to get the money. And the light, God is light, the light that he has, the knowledge he has of God, he will use that to get money because he's focused on that as well. So the light becomes darkness. And how great is that darkness? Because this guy thinks, because he's invoking the name of God in his pursuit of prosperity, that he's actually doing something good. He thinks the richer he gets, the better he is. He thinks gain is godliness, and that's not the case. How great is that darkness? He actually thinks that it's light. Now, if you want a good biblical definition for the evil eye, come to Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28 and verse 22. And here the Bible spells it out very clearly for us. Proverbs 28 verse 22. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. So this man's greedy. Just, he just wants money and he wants it now. Now, plugging that into what we're reading in Matthew chapter 6, this man's going to use God to get the money quickly. How great is that darkness? Verse 24, No man can serve two masters. Right? Can't have your eyes split out different ways. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is another word for wealth. A lot of times people say mammon is money. Mammon is more than money, any sort of wealth. So you can have different possessions, a car, a boat, a chair, whatever, a sofa set, that that can also be considered mammon, clothes, whatever. Now, it's okay to have those things, and you've heard this before, as long as those things don't have you, as long as they are not your master. It, I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you that you have to choose God or money, but you can't have both. That's not true. There's lots of rich people that love God and, and come by their wealth properly. And... Money is not the focus of their life. They use the money they have appropriately. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul told Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. It says that they need to be ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in, uh, in store, uh, laying up treasures in heaven. Forgive me, I'm forgetting the rest of that passage, but... 
Paul didn't say, tell the rich people that they need to give up their money so that they can be godly. He said, tell those people that if they have money, don't let the money become the main thing. Don't trust in it. You can enjoy it, but don't trust in it. Jesus points out that you'll hate the one and love the other if they're masters, right? So you can love God and say, God, thank you for the money. And God, if you take the money away, I'll still love you because my relationship with you is not based on, the, on things. It's based, it's based on something more real than these things. It's based on a spiritual connection that we have, the life that you've given me within. Verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Now, the way people apply the, the modern English of this, take no thought. So don't think about anything of the future. Take no thought for your life. Don't make any plans. That's, that's not what Jesus is teaching. As I showed you in Proverbs, it's okay to, to plan ahead a little bit. A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. So you can look down and it, you know, plan for the next few months or year or whatever. God said in the book of Deuteronomy, Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. It's okay to make a plan, right? A man's heart deviseth his path. The Lord directs his steps. When Jesus says, take no thought, the Greek behind that can also be translated, don't be anxious, don't worry. Now, if, if you say, well, why don't you know, we just get a different version of the Bible that says that? You actually don't need it. The context will tell you that. But turn in your Bible just quickly to Luke chapter 12. And let me show you how the Bible interprets itself. Luke chapter 12. And the attendance code for tonight is Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13. So only the degree students need to send that through to the church phone or, or email. Luke 12, now you can see, starting in verse 22, he says to the disciples, take no thought for your life, neither for your body. It's the same type of passage that we're about to read. Uh, come on down to verse number 29. And seek not... And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. You don't want to sit around doubting, panicking, worrying, anxious. That. So what does he mean when he says take no thought? doesn't mean that you can't plan. He's just saying don't worry. Make a plan and then let God direct your steps. Do what you, do, do what you need to do on a daily basis and let God take care of it. Uh, back to Matthew 6 and verse number 25. Take no thought for your life, for uh, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? I told you guys this, I think it was Sunday morning, was it not? About true life. Or maybe it was Sunday night, either one. I mentioned what true life is, what, what it means to have eternal life right now. Just eating and putting on clothes, going to sleep, getting back up, working, eating, that's, that's not all there is to life. Is not the life more than meat? Surely it's more than that. Verse 26, Behold, now Jesus is going to turn to nature to, to uh, illustrate His points. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Now be careful here. Jesus is not comparing apples to apples. We are not birds. Look at the end of the verse. 
Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. He does feed the birds. Are ye not much better than they? Yeah, of course you will. Sure you are. You're not birds. So it's okay to have a barn. It says here for the birds, they sow not, neither do they reap. Does that mean we're not allowed to sow and reap? We're not allowed to farm? My goodness, don't, don't say that in South Africa. <laughs> in Hiri Buraland, you can't say that. Even in the Bible, God, God instructed the Israelites on how to farm. So farming's okay. Storing up for the future is okay. Jesus is illustrating one point. That is, the birds, they don't have barns. They don't have fields and farming. And yet they're taken care of. God provides for their daily needs. Now, if God's going to take care of birds and you're much better than birds, then why are you worried? Why are you worried? I've never seen a bird worry, but the only bird that I think would qualify for this is the woodpecker, because I feel like him every now and then beating my head up against that, that tree, you know, trying to get what I need. Verse 27, I, I, I wish somebody would laugh. I can't hear anybody laugh. I hope that was funny, but anyway, it's funny to me, the woodpecker banging his head. I feel like that so often. Verse 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature. All right, let me show you what a cubit is. This elbow to fingertip. Let me get in. That's a cubit. Um, in, in the Old Testament, it wasn't actually a precise measurement. They would go by that arm length, but we know it as a, a foot and a half or 18 inches. I would say half a meter, thereabouts. That's a cubit. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? So if you're going to sit there and worry about it, can, can you actually make yourself grow? Well, no. You can sit there and think about it all you want. There are certain things, listen to this, there are certain things you can do nothing about. And when there's nothing you can do about it, stop worrying about it. Stop worrying about it. Verse 28, And why take ye thought for raiment? So now he's going to focus in on that. He talked about the food with the birds. Now he's going to use a different illustration. Consider the lilies of the field how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Now again, Jesus is not saying, eh, just like the flowers, you don't need to work. That's not, that's not the lesson. We are supposed to work. Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his reward, but he's just making a point. The lilies, they don't toil or spin. They're not seamstresses and they're not working at the sewing machines. Verse 29, yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So it says, you look at a field, and you look at how the field is, is decorated and covered in these lilies. Even that one flower, how beautiful it is. He says, Solomon, and when you read about Solomon's kingdom and how it was decked out, the Queen of Sheba came, and, and the Bible says there was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. Jesus says, that's nothing. Look at what God did. Look at how beautiful nature is. And you and I both know, you, you can look all around at God's handiwork on this earth, and it is breathtaking. Now, Solomon had to have a lot of servants put in a lot of time to make his kingdom look that good. But the lilies, God did that. God provided that. Verse 30, Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, so you use it just to light the fire, Shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? 
God help us if we are ever in the position where we are wondering, how, God, are you going to feed me tomorrow? Where, God, am I going to get clothing? And the reason I pause at that is because I know, I know we have people in our church that, that they do. They live, I want to say week to week, but at some points day to day. And when I lived in Malawi, I saw, I saw these verses fulfilled before my eyes. I saw so many times Malawians come to me in tears and telling me testimony after testimony about how God it right when they needed it, provided for them. What a sin it is to worry. What a disgrace it must be to God when we do that. Verse 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Now bear in mind, I want to give you some doctrinal uh, a, a doctrinal thought on this. Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to be resurrected in order to fulfill prophecy, yes? But then what comes after that? If, if the Jews as a nation had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, you know we've covered this in other classes, what we know as the church age wouldn't have happened. And after the resurrection, Daniel's 70th week would have happened, wherein there are seven years, this Antichrist ruling the world, and then the Jews would be heavily persecuted, and the believers in Christ would have been heavily persecuted at that time. So there was a very present and, and I want to say ominous or imminent meaning for this. Because in that tribulation time, you can't buy or sell unless you take the mark. So there's a time when, the, when believers in Jesus may not have access to daily things, uh, th these daily needs, and they will have to pray their way through it. So when you think of this doctrinally or even prophetically, because the tribulation is still going to happen, it, it, but it could have happened. He was preparing his disciples to potentially go through that. Verse 32, For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Everybody in the world is looking for these things. So you can see the comparison here where he's saying the Gentiles, he knows he's talking to a Jewish crowd. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. This harkens back to what we've already covered back in verse number 8. Your Father knows. He's aware of this. And we learned it in, in Sunday's sermon. We talked about going the extra mile, having a higher standard. Everybody in the world has these same needs. The Gentiles, everybody's seeking for food, drink, raiment. Everybody's looking for these basic necessities. Now, you and I as disciples of Christ, we've been given greater light. We have more revelation on this. We know more about God than the heathen. God has revealed Himself. We should know that He is going to provide. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, now that's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. I believe that's what Jesus is referring to here. If you want to understand this as seek first that kingdom age, 
I can potential, I can see some potential in that. I can understand where somebody would say if, if a person is focused on that, then, then their priorities would be in the right place. But I, I think there's more of a spiritual aspect because of what follows. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. See? Not meat and drink, righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom of God. Now, another way to think of the kingdom of God is God operating in your heart. That's that spiritual, personal kingdom. When God rules over you, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You see, God does not ignore those physical needs. He doesn't say, if you have God, you don't need any money. You don't need any of this. That's not the case. Put God first, and then all of those things will flow as needed. Verse 34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Again, that is, don't worry about it. You can make a plan, but after you've made the plan, don't worry about it. That's all you can do. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. That's a great phrase. What a smart way to say it. You're not there yet. You're not to tomorrow yet. If you're busy worrying about tomorrow, then you're not doing everything you can now to prepare for that. Dr. Ruckman used to tell us the best way to prepare for tomorrow is to do what you ought to do today. Well, if I'm worried about tomorrow, I'm wasting the time of today. The, the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You have enough problems to deal with right now. You don't need to be worried about what might happen in the future. We burn a lot of our spiritual effort on what if this, what if this, what if this. It's all right to consider the possibilities and make a plan, but that's it. After you've done that, you put it in the hands of God, and you say, Lord, I've devised a path. I've tried to be prudent. The rest of this is up to you. Please lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. And then you rest in the promises of God. You let the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your heart and mind. I'm going to close on Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. So if God's not involved in the project, really not much use in doing it. Verse 2, it is vain, and especially verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows, being worried about it, anxious. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Well, guys, I must admit, I, I have struggled with this for years. I am, whew, I am prone to worrying. But I will say, as time has gone on, God has given me more and more victory on this. It is something you can overcome. And I do. I try to practice it, and I urge you to do the same. Be careful for nothing, Paul said. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful promise. We have to take advantage of it. All right, that's where we're going to close for the night. Let me just take a quick look at 
the chats. I don't see, you know, last time the chats, I, the messages came through for a while, but then they stopped. So I haven't seen anything come through in a bit. I don't see any questions in there now. So we're going to we're going to go ahead and pray and close for now. But please tune in again tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, and we'll have Galatians chapter 6 for you then. Father, thank you for this evening, for the privilege um, to gather around your word, even at a distance. And I pray you'd help us to apply it. Oh, Lord, help us to apply what we've learned. Lord, please don't lead us into temptation. God, you, I, I, I'm confident you will not give us more than we can handle. And whatever trouble does come our way, you'll give us the grace we need to get through it. You will provide. You always have. God, might we say thank you. Thank you so much, God, for being abundantly good to us because you have been. Lord, please forgive us any time that something else has become our master. We want to hold to you. We want to love you with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Please help each student now let these things sink in. Father, use them to better prepare them and all of us to be servants and ministers for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.